Yeah, the James Bond theme, sung by yours truly, Vince in the Bay. I uh, don't have the rights to use that soundtrack music, so uh, that's the best I can do. Any hoot, welcome to the Vince in the Bay podcast. This episode, my guest is author and historian Christopher Kelly, who will join me to discuss the surveillance society that we live in today and how it has its origins in World War I espionage. Christopher recently wrote an article on this topic, and you can find it posted in its entirety on my bloggity blog. That's at vinceinthebay.com. And now, without any further ado... My interview with Christopher Kelly. Lately, we've been hearing on a daily basis about alleged wiretapping by leaders and governments, both foreign and domestic. Americans find themselves asking, what is our government up to? What might be the consequences of government's abilities to listen to our private conversations? If history is any indicator, the answer may be troubling. Much of the surveillance society in which we live today had its origins in World War I espionage, which began the decade after Guillermo Marconi. I practiced this, damn it. Guillermo Marconi transmitted the first transatlantic message from Cornwall in England to Newfoundland in Canada in 1901. Soon, governments were scrambling to intercept the blizzard of electronic transmissions that followed. The British built a sophisticated signals intelligence network designed to monitor German radio traffic during the war. Their SIS, Secret Intelligence Service and forerunner to MI6, established monitoring stations from Folkestone to London. And these newfound clandestine surveillance capabilities, while a promising tool for national security, also turned out to be the very thing that prompted America's entry into World War I 100 years ago. That's an excerpt from Surveillance Technology Drove America to Enter World War I, a piece by author and historian Christopher Kelly. Christopher's recent work includes editing a memoir by his great-grandfather, Thomas Tilson Wells, entitled An Adventure in 1914 which chronicles Wells's family traveling in Europe on the brink of World War I. Christopher has also co-authored two books entitled America Invades and Italy Invades, How Italians Conquered the World. I like that title. I'm Italian. And now we have from Geneva, Switzerland, Mr. Christopher Kelly. Thank you for joining me, Christopher. Vince, great to be with you. I'm very excited about this piece that you wrote and I guess I, I, I need to start the vetting process with this question. Are you a Russian spy? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, my great-grandfather, who was a New York lawyer, was accused of being a Russian spy in 1914. He was actually stopped and detained by the Austrian authorities and accused of being a Russian spy, threatened with immediate execution uh, if he didn't talk. And they said that they had two others that were, had been arrested as well. That, that took place in Riva. Uh, and t today it's called Riva del Garda, uh, which today is in Italy, but at that time the northern part of Lake Garda belonged to the Austrians. And uh, yeah, my great-grandfather, fortunately for me, managed to talk his way out of that. But. I'll take that as a 
maybe. <laughs> or uh, I cannot confirm or deny. So, <laughs> so I just thought I'd ask because we're we're you know we're in this uh, we're living in this new age of McCarthyism and and I feel like it's my duty as uh, as a citizen to root out all these subversives and the fact that your great grandfather was accused of being a Russian spy seemed kind of dubious. Anyway. Okay, so this piece that you wrote, uh, what what inspired you to write this, and um, what are you hoping uh, to accomplish with it? Well, I'm I'm a guy who's fascinated with history. Um, I mean, military history in particular, but really all history. And my latest book, An Adventure in 1914, is is uh, the most personal book that I've been involved with, and and it was and it really dealt with issues relating to the outbreak of World War One, which I found were you know closely connected to. Uh, this development of our society as a surveillance society. Uh, the, I mean, the surveillance society that we live in today, where everybody's worried about you know uh, this, the the security of their email. Um, I mean, in the old days, uh, war was about uh, battleships and fortifications being bombed and things like that. Today, it might be about a, you know an attack upon credit scores and the uh, the whole digital infrastructure that we live in, you know, not to mention the democratic institutions that we have as well. Well, I I don't have to worry about the attack on tr- credit scores. Mine's uh, mine's terrible. So, you know, the, <laughs> hey, Russians, you guys can come at me, bros. There's nothing to take. Um, what um, what audience are you trying to reach with this piece? Is there a specific uh, demographic or is it just a sort of a general thing? I think it's fairly general. I mean, in the sense that, I mean, here we are, April of 2017. We're 100 years after the uh, American entry into World War I, which was really kind of a watershed event. Uh, I mean, 1917, April 1917, uh, Woodrow Wilson led us into the war, which was really kind of a fundamental change in American foreign policy. I mean, we're, as we had been pretty much isolationist uh, prior to this event. Uh, and from George Washington had said, you know, no entangling alliances and had, you know, America steering a separate course, course separate from the Europeans, let the Europeans fight their own wars, we'll stay out of it type of thing. And that changed fundamentally with Wilson a hundred years ago. Uh, and so I think that, that and, and, you know, World War I has, has had this really important impact on the world. I mean, you had 17 million people were killed in the course of World War One. Uh, over 100,000 Americans were killed in World War One. Uh, it was an, a war that that destroyed four empires. I mean, the Russian Empire, the, the Tsar's regime was was totally shattered in, by revolution. Uh, the German Kaiser had to go into exile, and the German uh, Empire was destroyed. Uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was broken up, and then the Ottoman Empire. Which was a huge empire was was also uh, destroyed, and I mean, it led to the creation of c- countries like Iraq and Syria, which obviously we're living with the consequences today. In this piece, you uh, you detail how British intelligence essentially uh, were responsible for pulling uh, America into the war, and it all began in Room Forty. What the heck is Room Forty? That's right. Well, I think when people think about British intelligence, they think about, you know, a martini swilling guy 
you know, James Bond, uh, a field agent. Uh, and, you know, maybe there's, there's some truth to that, but, but there's also a much more uh, mundane uh, approach to intelligence that the British were employing really to great effect back 100 years ago. And this Room 40 was a division of the uh, Admiralty, the British Admiralty, the Royal Navy, that was their intelligence division. And that was what was in charge of monitoring this traffic that, we're, that you were, were talking about at the beginning, uh, all of this kind of radio traffic going back and forth between governments. And what happened is that the British intercepted a telegram that had been sent from, by the German ambassador in Washington, D.C. to his counterpart in Mexico City. And it was outlining uh, the idea of a basically a conspiracy to have Mexico enter the war in this is we're talking World War One on the side of the central powers in the event that America entered the war on war in the Allied powers. So in other words, plotting with Mexico to possibly attack the United States uh, in the event that America got involved in the war. So when people learned about that, when it was disclosed and it became public, uh, there was a great, of course, there was a great outcry uh, by a lot of Americans. And that was one of the major reasons why, um, why America actually uh, entered the war 100 years ago. It's called the Zimmerman Telegram, too, of course, by the way. Yeah. And what's, what is that? Who, who's Zimmerman? Zimmerman was the ambassador. Uh, I think he was the, the the Washington ambassador whose telegram was actually intercepted. So he was the one who was, you know, in the in the conspiracy to try and get the Mexicans in the war on the the side of the central central powers would be Germany and Austria Hungary essentially, and also the Turks. The uh, Ottoman Turks were fighting together, and then the Allies uh, were France and Britain, and then for a time, uh, Russia as well. And then eventually, of course, we entered 100 years ago, April, April 1917, as, to the end of the war. Were the Germans successful in um, recruiting the, the Mexicans to, to enter into the war in alliance with them? How did that play out? No, it didn't. Uh, it, and it, it backfired on them badly, actually, because, I mean, not only did, with the disclosure of the telegram, it, it helped to bring America in the war, and it did not help to bring the Mexican. In fact, the opposite. I mean, Mexico remained neutral in World War One, so they didn't get involved at all. Even though there had been some hostility to between the USA and Mexico before that, there were troubles on the border in 1916, the year before, with Pancho Villa, and uh, I mean, even uh, George, uh, George Patton was involved in in a little bit of, of skirmishing on the border uh, with Mexico in 1916. But uh, as a as a lieutenant, actually. So it, it did not work. But I, I should say, though, that the Germans had their own intelligence department as well. You could say that the, the, the two great intelligence coups of the war, one was the Zimmerman telegram by the British, and the second one was the, really the plot by the Germans to introduce uh, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin to Tsarist Russia because they sent him on a, on a sealed train and they also helped to finance the beginning of the Bolshevik Revolution. So the communist revolution in Russia was, in a sense, a German pl- a plot of German intelligence, too. And is it – I keep forgetting who it is. Is it Trotsky? I forget who that was in exile in Mexico. Trotsky, it was – that was later. It was in the, in the like the 30, 20s and 30s, I think. But okay. he, was, he was in Mexico, too. Um, but that was uh, after after World War One. But 
Yes. So, so you have, you know, you know, kind of multiple conspiracies going on during the war. Obviously, communism had a, and had a, the Russian Revolution had a tremendous impact on not just Russia, but the whole world. And of course, the, you know, involvement of America as being an engaged power. I'm actually speaking to you today from the Hotel President Wilson in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, which of course is named after him. And the League of Nations is actually right next door, which he helped, he tried to found, found, but America never actually joined in. Uh, but so, you know, Wilson, you know, had, a, I mean, it, it was a kind of a fundamental shift in America's uh, attitude towards the, wor the world, which I think still is in play today. I mean, the fact that just a few weeks ago, you had uh, President Trump attacking uh, Syria with uh, Tomahawk missiles. It was, again, an example of America, and this was almost on the exact 100th anniversary of Wilson's involvement with the war, whether you, you know, approve of it or disapprove of it, of America becoming, being engaged in the world, taking a side, if you will, in what might otherwise be considered a, a civil war. Well, thank God we don't have any uh, more tensions with uh, Mexico and Russia. <laughs> thank God that's all behind us. The parallels are frightening because, I mean, when you, if you go through the list of things, you know, going on then and are going on today leading to the, this outbreak of this war, it's is somewhat staggering. I mean, you just touched on two of them. I mean, you had other things. To, you had interlocking alliances. I mean, you, it, during World War I, you had interlocking alliances between the Central Powers and the Triple Entente. And what that meant was that it's the same thing of, that NATO has, is that an attack on one country means an attack on all, according to Article 5 of NATO. So in other words, that if Russia were to invade Lithuania tomorrow, because Lithuania is a NATO member, uh, that would be an attack upon the United States too. And so, which could immediately involve us in a in a, a conflict with uh, with Russia, with Putin's Russia. So, so you have interlocking alliances. You had a financial crisis in 1914. Obviously, we've had financial crisis re recently. You have surveillance issues um, going on then and going on now. Uh, and also, it was the way that the United, that the world kind of stumbled into war. Nobody really wanted World War One as as such. Uh, they th thought they would get in, into a low grade conflict that you know, would be resolved quickly and, and perhaps victoriously, gloriously. Of course, they got something completely different with the actual the actuality of the war. Bringing it back to the, the surveillance state, now it's, nowadays people are paranoid about the government spying on them and, and mass surveillance and mass collection of data. Was there an equivalent of mass surveillance, mass collection of data uh, back in World War I when this, this all came about? You know, one of the other victims of uh, of Room Forty, which again is British intelligence, the the same ones that did the Zimmerman telegram, they also intercepted the identity of uh, a, a particular agent who had been, shall we say, friendly with both sides. And her name was she's known to the world as Matahari, and she was a Dutch. Uh, I guess I guess you could call her the first striptease artist in a sense. Uh, I don't know if, that, if that's possible to be the first one, but she was anyway in that in that uh, uh, field, and she was friendly with officers on both sides, with German officers and with French officers, and her identity was uncovered by uh, Room Forty, 
and by the British, and that was passed along to the French. And the French arrested her, tried her, and, and uh, executed Matahari, uh, who was a Dutch citizen, uh, which and, and the Netherlands were were neutral during World War One, but nevertheless. So, so you have, I mean, she, I mean, she was certainly a casualty of uh, of surveillance going, on, and her identity was was compromised uh, directly by the surveillance society. What I'm curious about is, okay, so this this tells me a lot about the uh, British intelligence, but how about the uh, the the American intelligence? Did they uh, did they rely solely on the British, or did they uh, develop their own um, signals intelligence at the same time? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I think America was behind in general in terms of the development of intelligence. We were behind in in terms of warfare in a lot of different ways. I mean, for instance, uh, in 1917, and really all through the war, there was no aviation, military aviation industry in the United States. So that the U.S. had planes, but all of those planes had to be purchased from uh, France and Britain and even Italy supplied planes to the United States. Uh, Caproni fighters were purchased by the U.S. Navy. Uh, SPAD planes made in France were purchased by the, for the U.S. Air Force. So we had no military aviation at all um, at the start, really all through World War I. And so obviously today we have change in terms of te- military technology. And of course we have a great deal of it today. So there's just been enormous change in that area. So we were, I would say we were, you know, more naive about war and that affected our intelligence capabilities. I mean, we um, the American government in general tried to do things on the cheap for a long time and to not pay for things. I mean, this is a little bit off the topic, but we had to have, th- I think, three presidents were assassinated before they created the Secret Service. So it took three assassinations to finally dis- realize that maybe we actually need a Secret Service in it for, for American presidents. Oh, man. I, you know, this British intelligence... They have a history going back to World War One now that I learned of, of pulling us into these altercations. I'm, I'm, now I'm reminded of uh, the yellow cake, uranium, right? That was right. that was British intelligence. And <laughs> yes. And right now we have this whole Trump Russia connection that everybody's right. delving into. And a lot of that is based on this dossier that was uh, that right. was, that was right. given over by uh, former British intelligence agents. Agent, you're right. You know that's exactly the dos- the famous dossier. Exactly has has its roots supposedly in British intelligence or a former agent, just as you say. So yeah, people think of it in terms of James Bond. It's quite different from James Bond, actually, and and quite a bit CDR too, I suppose you might say. So you're in Geneva right now. What's the climate like there around the UN with with all that's going on currently? Well, yeah, I'm I'm in Geneva. I gave a talk at a school called Institut Le Rosé which is in Roll, Switzerland, which is a school. It's the, it's the most expensive high school in the world, <laughs> I'm told. Um, the tuition there is, is $135,000 per year. So you have the, the sons and daughters of billionaires and, and royalty and so forth that go there. And uh, I went there because my great-grandfather, who is Thomas Tileson Wells, who you mentioned with, that wrote this thing called An Adventure in 1914. He was the one who was accused of being the Russian spy and all of that. And he wrote this thing about traveling in Europe 
in the summer of 1914, and and he went to that school uh, back in 1883, actually. And so I, I'd always had been interested in in trying to see what it would travel going back in his footsteps and seeing what it was like. And I spoke to uh, some of those kids and the, their teachers about about history and about World War One. Are they a bunch of spoiled brats that don't really give a rat's ass? You can tell me. It's fine. Well, I could. I have to t- say they're ver- they were very polite and they were very uh, very friendly and, and nice uh, and seemed to be very engaged. So um, you know, but uh, but I mean, they do come from and I, I mean, like we took pictures of uh, of me with with them in a group shot afterwards, but I can't publish them or else I think I'd be in very deep trouble. So I'd have to blur their faces if I were to to publish any of their of their pictures. Interesting. I'm speaking with Christopher Kelly. He's an author, historian, and you're also a former television producer. Is that right? I was in the television business for many years, for over 20 years. Uh, actually, on the West Coast, I grew up in California, not far from you. I grew up, I was born in Sacramento. Uh, I was involved with uh, stations in Sacramento and TV in, and also in Seattle, Washington. After that, after I, I got out of that business in the 90s, and I was uh, the chairman of Chiron Corporation as well, which does graphics for television. I noticed that you have a, you have a, you do a lot of work in video as well. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm not f- familiar with Chiron, but uh, I probably am familiar with some of their products. They do graphics, so like they do uh, character generators. So you ah. know, for putting putting on you know text onto uh, where either real time sports or news or or you know whatever for post production and live production of things. Oh, this Bill O'Reilly thing that I, I I couldn't believe it. There was actually a story about wow, look at that. They changed the graphic on the O'Reilly Factor and took out O'Reilly. <laughs> that was a, that was an actual story I read. I was like, you got to be kidding me. You know how easy it is to just go in there, delete some text, and then mm-hmm. repost it. It, right. it. it blows my mind you know, what, what makes news today. As a, a former news person, what's your take on the current state of journalism and, and in, in this environment of propaganda and now fake news? Uh, well, I think that one has to be very a very careful consumer of news. It's good to try to sample from all sources. I mean, if you're if you're a you know regular Fox viewer, you should also listen to NPR and vice versa. Is what the way I, f- I think that you need to kind of expose yourself to all kinds of different points of view to make sense of of what's going on. Is is that's I mean that's my preference anyway. Yeah, I agree. I I, I try to stay informed uh, from all angles, but I got to tell you, I can't stand either of those outlets fox news and npr i i oh man and and it's not to say that both don't have uh, reputable hard news reporting it's just sure. the the slant it's so it's so obvious and yes. and it and it just feels like like journalism is dead like yes journalism is now in the hands of the consumer they have to sift they have to do their own editorializing right. now and right. and people don't want to do that they want to camp in their little echo chamber and hear the news that they want to hear. Talk about intelligence. I feel like this is just eroding people's intelligence overall. Yes. I mean, there is a, a 
dumbing down factor, I think, that goes on with, with news, to be sure. The lowest co- common denominator, all of that is, is, a, is a factor. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, that Bill O'Reilly I mean, was, you know, was sacked in spite of the fact that his ratings were, you know, at like all-time highs or whatever. I mean, even right up until the end of his deal, that, that it was not his ratings that were the problem. It was obviously the advertisers that, that had just said enough, and that spelled kind of the end of his, his career at Fox. I have a feeling that Bill's going to be okay. He's going to land on he's going to land on his feet. Twenty five million. He did did just fine, and and I'm sure that he'll be busy with something. Okay, so going back to all of this uh, intelligence gathering and whatnot, um, I want I want to get back to tying it together to the current sure. climate, um, the current news cycle. We talked about that dossier. A lot of people yes. are a lot of people are putting a lot or investing a lot into that dossier and. I th- I think that the average person, myself included, doesn't realize that 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 is an example of just one sample of the t- the type of intelligence gathering that happens and that has to be corroborated. Um, okay, so back in World War One, when when all this was going on, going on and they were gathering intelligence, was it harder to corroborate stuff because they were probably getting it from less sources, right? Um, well, I mean, I, there were fewer sources. There was less electronic transmissions going on. I mean, you didn't have email. You didn't have even telephones were a, a rarity at those days. Uh, but nevertheless, it was it was starting then. I mean, the governments were interested in transmissions, interested in telegrams, interested in radio messages, and were were definitely you know decoding this stuff. And there was the guy who was uh, the American Secretary of State who said that. We don't, uh, gentlemen don't read other gentlemen's mail. <laughs> and that, I mean, he, he was actually Secretary of State during World War II, so this is later. But uh, how incredibly, you know, naive that sounds. Uh, and of course, how hypocritical, I guess, because of course, in World War II, there was a great deal of reading other people's mail. I mean, that you had decryption of the German German messages and also the Japanese as well um, in, in on both sides, which really had a profound impact on World War II. Yeah, and um, in World War One, the news industry back then was entirely just print. Right, and the news cycle was different too. I mean, that you that you, you're right; it was print, and so it was dominated. I mean, you didn't even have radio during World War One, so and much less television or the internet or anything like that. And for instance, my great grandfather he learned about the. I mean, the the, the event that triggered World War One was this assassination on June twenty eighth, nineteen fourteen, of the Archduke Ferdinand, and he was Franz Ferdinand. Franz Ferdinand. Franz Ferdinand. Exactly. Yeah, fantastic band. I love their I love their records. Saw them I saw them live. They were great. Did you good? Well, he was assassinated in Sarajevo with his wife by Gavril Princip, Bosnian Serb, on June twenty eighth, nineteen fourteen. I mean, like Americans are familiar with eleven twenty two sixty three when JFK was assassinated because it's also a, a TV miniseries among other things and a novel by Stephen King. But six twenty eight nineteen fourteen was was even more profoundly uh, consequential because it actually did trigger a world war. And, you know, thank goodness Kennedy's assassination did not. But that assassination took place when my great-grandfather was on this ship coming across the Atlantic. So he had he left um, from New York, was headed to Europe on this, you know, this holiday. And he had no idea that a war was about to break out. 
And even after they landed and learned about the assassination, they still didn't know what was this, this assassination that this dust up in the Balkans would turn into the start of World War I, which, and that it, would, that it would involve so many powers and, and affect him as well. Now, your great-grandfather, I, I forget who he had an alleged affair with, but um, it was a, it was a, a, was it the queen of, uh, it was some royalty. Tell me about that. There is a juicy story there too. Yeah. There, I've all, I dig, dug up all the skeletons out of my family's closet. My, my great grandfather is alleged to have had an affair with Queen Marie of Romania. She really has an English connection. She's the granddaughter of Queen Victoria and she's married to King Ferdinand and, and they had, you know, what you would definitely call an open marriage. She had many lovers in her life, including other Americans. One was Waldorf Astor. And the, there's no doubt that they had a friendship. Uh, and there's no doubt also that she was, in a sense, his boss. I mean, my great-grandfather served as the honorary consul uh, for Romania based in New York City. So he did that from like 1918 to 1941 for a long time. So and and she was queen in, until her death in 1938. So the question is, okay, why do I think they might have had an affair? And my answer, I mean, my source is is, is my. Uh, I did interviews with my own family members, and um, and what I learned is that my grandmother, I mean, his my well, my great grandfather's own daughter, believed that they had an affair. You can believe that or not believe it, but um, that's what. And I thought it was it was uh, too good a rumor to not uh, pass along. Sure. Um, <laughs> so when you were doing when you were interviewing your family, did any of them say like, "Look, Christopher, you do not want to go down this route"? Okay. Did they get any pushback from the family, or were they were they all in? No. No, it's really interesting because I mean, okay, everybody talks to their mom, right? And uh, we all talk to our mom and our parents, hopefully, all, you know, on a regular basis, and that's great. But interviewing your mom or your aunt or something is interviewing a family member is different. I mean, you have you have you have to prepare. You've got to ask, you know, figure out what questions you're going to ask, just like you're asking me. I mean, you've got uh, you and the and the conversation is is different from just having a chat with your mom, to be sure. So, but uh, but I didn't get pushback where they felt like, oh, you're going too far with it. I mean, they were, they were happy to provide, uh, you know, titillating details. So, And once again, that is An Adventure in 1914, a memoir about your family traveling to Europe on the brink of World War One. Uh, and checking out this book, there's there's a map that you have where you you sort of chronicle the the trajectory that they took. Yeah. And there's one where it's it's a dotted line and it goes back across. And is right. that is that um, some sort of uh, radio transmission? What's what's that about? <laughs> I think that was just one where I mean, what I had to work with was this memoir that he produced, which is like about 25 pages typewritten that he wrote after he'd gotten back from this this kind of harrowing trip and it didn't you know it started at it started in paris and i know that obviously his trip didn't start in paris i know he came from the united states so i think i used a dotted line to just show that it wasn't a radio transmission it was just saying that you know i think he made it you know he he obviously made it from somewhere in the united states probably new york to either Britain or France, and I, I didn't know the exact route that he took. That he took, so that's why I, I, you know, made it a little bit fuzzier with that. But yes. And how did you come across this memoir? Uh, it was given to me by my aunt, uh, who lives in, in upstate New York in Albany, and I was on a book tour for another book, for a book called America Invades, which is about America's military involvement around the world in looking at 
at uh, all the uh, the areas that I mean that America has been militarily involved with almost every country on earth, and the only three that we've missed so far are Andorra, Bhutan, and Liechtenstein. And so I was on a tour for that book, and I saw my aunt, and she said, "Chris, you like history. You might be interested in this." And she passed along, and I found it fascinating. I mean, that, that not only because it was my family member, but because 1914 was this hugely important time in world history where the world really kind of fundamentally changed in, in a very, very quick and violent way. So uh, based on all your research and uh, everything you've published and stuff, what what do you feel like we as a society, we as Americans can learn from these prior instances of uh, espionage and signal intelligence? Well, I think it's important just to be aware that it's going on all the time, that there is, you know, media manipulation going on and attempted uh, attempts by governments to to spin, you know, the 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 truth uh, and 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 certainly to influence the outcomes. I mean, that uh, that Britain was trying to influence the outcome to get America on board. Um, America was open to the suggestion because there were other things going on too. I mean that America had a huge financial interest in the Allies. I mean we we they had there was a, a huge amount of debt that that uh, the Allied war machine owed money to the United States at the time too. So we were receptive to that to it as well. And then you also had things like unrestricted submarine warfare going on as, at the same time too. I mean things like the Lusitania was sunk. Um, but you know, I would say you know, be aware that uh, that this and that this has been going on for a very long time. Uh, so what you know it, it has Russia tried to influence the twenty sixteen election? Well, I mean, the fact is that Russia and in, in many countries have been trying to influence you know many elections, including nineteen, including twenty sixteen, and that's been going on for a long time. And of course. Russia is trying to influence the election going on in in France, uh, the coming up uh, shortly as well. Christopher, um, what do you what's what's next for you? What are you working on now? Well, uh, my co-author and I, my co-author is is English, are uh, working on a new book, which is going to be a sequel to America Invades. America Invades was America going out in the rest of the world, but this next book is going to be called America Invaded, uh, and. It's going to be a state-by-state state history of fighting in the United States. So we, the, we didn't touch on any of that in our first book. We talked about Americans fighting in other countries. But so we have chapters on, you know, how was California invaded? How was uh, Florida, New York? And we go through every state, in, including uh, the District of Columbia, and talk about fighting. Going back from the ar- arrival of the first uh, Europeans in in every state to right up to you know incidents like 9/11 and uh, terrorism uh, in today's world as well. Wow! And that'll be out later this uh, later this year too. That's great! I can't wait to uh, to to read that. All right, yeah. Christopher. Before I let you go, um, tell me where we can learn more about you and your work. Sure, absolutely. We have uh, a couple of websites. Uh, I have AmericaInvades.com for my first book on American military involvement around the world. Uh, ItalyInvades.com, which might be of interest to you, Vince, uh, with your background. Uh, si. or, and uh, and then, of course, an AnAdventureIn1914.com. All of those books are available on Amazon as well and in eBooks as well. Awesome. Christopher Kelly, author, historian, 
Check him out at An Adventure in 1914. That's 1914.com. Thank you so much, Christopher. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to speak with me. Thanks, Vince. It's been it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Vince in the Bay podcast. Catch prior episodes on my bloggity blog. It's vinceinthebay.com or subscribe via iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Until next time, ciao.